Go ahead. I'll be honest. I, I played a very high standard. Young uh, superstar. Give some lessons. Determination. Was extremely Welcome to the Chess Underground. Eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. And I felt be down in flames. I felt like my style. I felt like sensing my style and skills. I only do so. From a distance. All right, um, welcome back to the Chess Underground June 2022. Uh, this is your host, Pete Garanis, with me, National Master and pool aficionado Gopal Menon. Gopal, say hello. Hello. Hello, Turkish. Um, we're going to start off today with this great new segment that I devised <laughs> in all of my spare free time when I do nothing but think about the show. Mm -hmm. um, it's called, quote, Gopal reacts to chess Twitter, end quote. Oh. Uh... <laughs> okay oh, i'm so afraid <laughs> all right are you ready yes. look how bad could it possibly be okay here's how bad it i could mean be, it right? is just twitter but yes just twitter. okay here we go here's the tweet so here's how the oh i should explain how the segment works since this is the first time we're doing it um so first uh just twitter exists whether or not that is a positive thing is unclear but it it's does not. exist um you can follow the chess hashtag and yeah, it's and the thing. Queen's Gambit, that's that's like a hashtag, right? Oh, really? I didn't know that. Okay, so you can follow it's, those hashtags not, and get in but... on the chess Twitter and grow the Twitter, Twitter sphere. Yes. Um, until you're censored by like Elon Musk or something. Um, and um, chess Twitter is, you know, it's like event coverage, but also people like posting funny things or things that they think are funny. So here's the chess tweet that we're going to read and react to. If for this week or month or whatever, I don't know. I've lost. I've lost complete sense of time in the past two years. Okay, are you ready? Yes, let's do it. All your sensors on high alert. Mm -hmm. Okay. Quote: Should I read it like, like the voice of the person who I imagine posted it? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Here we go. He is a ten, but he plays the French. Oh God. <laughs> Ugh, I What's responded wrong to this tweet, but I forgot who said that. I don't know. I mean, like, you know, ugh, there's just so much to unpack there. Like, I agree, actually. That was my first reaction. There is a lot to unpack there. Right? Like, uh, I mean, you know, we're like, what is it? I don't know. The Like, do the same people talk about not uh, like uh using the term bde or something because it would body shame but like you oh no the the french that's where we draw the line like are you oh my god so like it's okay too, is it okay time. okay so there's a good question is it okay to opening shame it is not i mean you can you know we discussed this on um uh enemies of the podcast uh you know julia rios and jj lang's uh chess fields podcast Oh, okay. We, yeah, we talked about like what your opening repertoire says about you in in the bedroom. So, oh, uh, I mean, okay. you know, I think we tried to stay away from opening shaming. 
because, you know, they're even in <clears throat> some of the most like innocuous of openings um, or dull, like there, there, there are ways to interpret them in such rich uh, fashions, you know? The opening really acts as a, a term that I like to use is it acts a lot like a canvas, um, just sort of for a person to use their, you know, imagination and skills on. I believe the quote that I've heard you directly say it is, you know, you can make any opening sexy. That is true. That is true. And so when we talk about the French, I mean, like we have like, I mean, Alexander Morozevich, definitely the first player that comes to mind. Uh, Victor Korchnoi, definitely from back in the day, like one of the most feisty uh, players, I think definitely would be the top on the feisty list for sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't Nepo uh, play the French every now and then as well? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it's not surprising because like with the the neural net engines really love the French lately. Um, and there are lots of dynamic possibilities in almost every line. I mean, notice that <clears throat> the people would, who would shame the French like are also probably bad players. And then... You know, but it's just so rich strategically, depending on whatever flavor of position you choose. So, uh, see, to me, if, like that's what it sort of is, right? It's like um, you need to experiment a bit. You need to go from vanilla, like me to, in college. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you need to go from like vanilla to like you know maybe um, I, I'm look. I'm struggling to to land this one. Help me out here. Where where do we go? Like um, leather and chains. That's that's probably too yeah, much. Yeah, BDSM. Yeah, well, okay, or some but, light BDSM, maybe some breath play, you know. <laughs> so that I mean, the the idea though is, you know, <laughs> what does what does <laughs> what does a what does a one thousand player think of when they see the French? And I don't want to rating shame either because everybody <clears> has their own <throat> journey and they're drawing. But like, you just see it and you're like, okay, how do I get my lights where bishop outside of this pawn chain? You know. And yeah, if you look at it true. from that perspective, it's going to be hard to appreciate some of the beauty of it. To me this tweet is just, just using the wrong conjunction, right? Right. And instead of a, but it should be an and. Yes, exactly. And also too, I think, you know, we, if we try to unpack where a lot of this really comes from, like apart from the obvious rating shaming or whatever, but like the French is like that really hot, but mysterious person that, you know, you tried to <clears throat> maybe, you know, you flirted with yeah, you flirted with a little bit, right, and got rebuffed. Something um, went horribly wrong at some juncture, right? Just yeah, it's like my childhood. But so, so basically, like, and now you're a chess player, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, yeah. But so, yeah, I think like we kind of fear, or you know, what we don't understand. And like, I've always thought the French was a very difficult opening to face as a lifetime E4 player because it is so strategically murky and there are lots of different ways, you know, against each of white's main options to meet it. Uh, black can in turn try to choose and uh, declare the flavor of the game. Yeah, I would agree. I, actually, you know, as we were talking, I was thinking back to like all time uh, great French games. And unfortunately the one that I settled on in my brain was a black loss, but it was, uh, it was an early game in the, Tall bought Vinick 1960 World Championship. Oh, match. with King D1, the first game of the 1960 match. It was the first game. Okay, I, I couldn't remember if it was if it was actually the first game, but yes, with King D1, and then later, if you recall, like the Queen rerouting also via D1, like coming back from H5. Ah, uh, right, yeah, those like the finishing maneuver, right? Yes, like this weird Queen 
triangulation retreat maneuver to, to basically seal the deal. I mean, what's not sexy about that position? I mean, that line is probably like refuted for black. But uh, I mean, if you just look at it with your two eyes, it's like it's incredibly sharp. Um, I mean, what's like what's, what's not, not to love about that against the Cyclops listening? OK, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what percentage yeah. of listeners are going to like pick up on that? one? Maybe they'll go back. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, but like that to me, like that game, you know, is like it's like a knife's edge, right? At every moment, right. almost. And that's pretty exciting chess in my most humble opinions. I mean, I mean, and sure, play the you you know, yeah, oh, boo the French, but okay, yeah, play your you know little chessable repertoire which has no stupid ass original lines of its own, and like, ugh, not cultivate like, ugh, just so cookie cutter, you know. Forget all that. What is the current cookie cutter black opening? Is it the Scandi or what? Like, maybe I can't believe I'm even saying that because you know. I don't know. Um, I mean, it's got to be like E4, E5 Berlin, probably. Like, or maybe like an anti martial some kind of anti martial maybe. Maybe I mean I feel like uh, you know, yeah, around the time I was in high school or maybe after that, so like over ten years ago for sure. That was definitely like at the top of the lot. That's kind of coming back, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Like these, I don't know, early D3 Spanish. I mean, but yeah, even then it's like, okay, every game kind of looks the same, but... uh, But there's like a room for these little inventions, right? Right, exactly. And that's kind of what modern chess boils down to. And ultimately, like, it's not about this narrative that we have of the opening because we're constantly finding new possibilities and ways to interpret very well-known positions every day. Um, it's just the type of spin that you're willing to put on it. And a lot of times what you see very commonly in chess literature, uh, something that we've maybe talked about on this podcast. I know I definitely have in others. It's, it's kind of like a highlight reel. So in order to, you know, form a more educated opinion, you have to kind of dig beyond that. Yeah, I think that's true. Right. I mean, you can, you can have the, 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 the 10 second, um, analysis that you know the 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 soundbite and the highlight reel as you put it um but you're right you do have to actually look into some of these some of these positions and some of the dynamics um go paul you're i i i'm asking you this because i know you're sort of like a chess encyclopedia wrap this up here for us drop drop some french knowledge like if i want to like check out some cool games if i want to find a cool book where should i where should i go to to go from he's a 10 but he plays the french to he is a 10 and he plays the french yeah, definitely. I would say any books by Victor Moskalenko uh, are okay. very good. The Flexible French, The Wonderful Winnower, and The Even More Flexible French, who's probably the latest one, came out like at least maybe, I guess like four or five years ago. Um, <clears throat> he writes with a lot of inspirational games, and he provides basically a lot of food for thought. Um, it's not like a comprehensive repertoire or anything like that. But he covers a lot of different lines and, yeah, just gives you a lot of inspiration from um, a lot of different players and a lot of different styles of playing the French. So I think that's that's really, you you can't go wrong starting that. Like, playing those, looking through those books, um, the French looks amazing. Also, uh, really random mention, but um, super rare, these two super rare books by this professor... Uh, this English professor, he was like an FM. Okay. His name was John Moles. Uh, he wrote two books on the winnower in the seventies. And yeah, for their time, those books 
or lovely. So wow, okay. yeah, from the seventies, so like pre-computer era, even. Right. Exactly. And and honestly, like it's a great place to dig for ideas. I mean, even uh, Fisher. Okay, that also in the pre-computer era, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's very well known. He would look through like old like old games, Steinitz, and stuff like that. All and basically scour all the literature for good ideas. Yeah. Speaking of Steinitz, I I think or no, I think it was Shigorin actually who you know the famous. Uh, story about meeting the French where they're sitting in the coffee house and the, the question comes up like, what's the silliest looking move you could play on move two against the French? Oh, of course. And then his trademark, Queenie two, right? Yes. And then it's Queenie two. And then it turns out to be like, you know, actually you can play that um, totally. after, after some, some looking. So, okay. Yeah. For good Queenie two games, go to, yeah, go see some games by Vadim Zviagensev. Okay. This see this is why this is why I love picking your brain on this stuff. But he literally is like uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica, everybody, and I know. Uh, he can pull those right out of nowhere. Exactly. I say this, and you've you've got like what like twelve tabs open on your browser. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. I, I actually have like I think it's thirty five right now. Honestly. Oh, are you are you a browser clogger? I don't even know what's the term for somebody who does that. Have daddy's you ever got to like, do what daddy's got to do. Right. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> Have you ever seen um, uh, an Andrew Tang stream at any point? Uh, yeah, I've seen. He has, he has like 75 or something yes, like that. It, I mean, honestly, um, it like gives me anxiety seeing how many tabs are open on his computer. I just want to like oh. close some of them for him. Yes, but as a fellow messy person, uh, I'm sure you'll uh, be able to take some sympathy in the fact that your own mess comforts you. That's true. I mean, and look, I am a fellow messy person, but like my computer, my desktop on my computer is super clean. There's like two icons on it. My internet browser, like at max, will have three tabs open. What does that say about me that I'm that I am a fellow messy person, but yet it's okay. I too okay. enjoy uh, missionary sex and unseasoned <laughs> food. <laughs> unseasoned food. Look. I, I, I think maybe I'm that's just kidding. Just, Everybody knows that ever that you love seasoned food as much as me as, as much, much as, as the I next do. person. Yeah, that's true. Fair enough. Um, you know what I think it says? I'm I'm just truly Gemini, right? Like the two the two sides. Are you are such a Gemini. You're such a Gemini. Uh, Ullman poison pawn variation rising. You know. <sighs> my my moon is in French. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and with that. That wraps up our first ever Gopal Reacts to Chess Twitter. Um, Gopal, we had an interesting topic that we sort of bantered back and forth about uh, discussing and bringing up uh, on the show. And we settled on um, a very broad category here. And today we're going to talk about psychology in relation to chess. When I say that, what does that, what does that mean to you, like psychology and chess? Um. You know, I think one of the most or probably like the most important stuff that's like not really covered in chess books is the everyday mundane decision making. Um, not quite like the highlight real critical moment stuff that you would see in certain games, but just like everyday decisions. And I think, uh, you know, for me, chess psychology is a big part of that, especially playing the type of tournaments that we play in the open fashion. Yeah, I would agree. I think, you know, um when you first, at least for me, I'll speak for myself. When I first heard, you know, psychology and chess, I think that the famous quote maybe that 
the intro quote that everybody hears is, is um, I think it was Fisher Chess's 90% psychology or something like that. Right. Or, no, he, I think he said, I, I don't believe in psychology. I believe in good moves. There was somebody who gave a Chess's 90% psychology quote, and maybe I'm just completely misattributing that. You could be right. Um, but you know what I think, I, I think back to um, a friend who I used to play with all the time in college. And he had the funniest idea. He had the idea that, well, I thought it was pretty humorous anyway, that you should always watch your opponent's eyes when they're on the move. Mm -hmm. And his idea was that their eyes, if you watch their eyes and what they're looking at, it's going to give away like something. I'm not even, it wasn't even clear to me what uh, exactly it was going to give away. But he had this idea that if you did that, you would gain some sort of advantage. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and then also he, he had the idea that you should also like make eye contact when you can and try to like, you know, almost like, I, I don't know, psych them out or something. I'm not clear. It wasn't clear to me what the point of all of this was. Right. Um, but another quote, which I also believe we attribute to Fisher was like, there's no bluffing on the chessboard. Right. Right. Yeah. There, I think those Lasker, right. La uh, Lasker, lies, bluffs just, do not Fisher succeed. Said everything, dude. Fisher said everything. I mean, he, he did. He, he <laughs> learned from all those great players of the past. Right. So why wouldn't he, uh, but yeah, I think mean, about like this idea, like almost like a poker-esque, like staring you down, maybe even like a little mind game element. Do you, do you, does that have any place in chess? Does it, is there anything to that? Or is this just like, no? Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, several G uh, grandmasters I know that I'm actually quite friendly with um, uh, off the chessboard. Like they, they've done this like to me, like let's say playing pretty fast in the opening. Usually I would say is the pattern. Okay. And like definitely getting early clock edge and just kind of like staring at me. But like, I don't think it's, I mean, whatever. I, I don't, I think they know that that's not going to work on me, but I think it's just like uh, kind of like poker where you're trying to read your opponent. Like you, you can definitely you see it in their in eyes. Position? How do you read them in a chess position? Uh, I mean, let's say like, you know, you enter this end game and you're slightly worse uh, and you know it, but it takes a certain, uh, how, how to say like character or a certain temperament, you know, to properly play such a position, you know, so you can kind of, you can just feel it like from their expression, mannerisms, uh, even like certain trends in the game, of course, whether or not they're comfortable. So like, that's, you know, that could be one example of like oh, reading okay. your yeah. opponent. Sure, I can see that, yeah. Sometimes it gets even more abstract where, like, you know, of course, you know, being in the great America that we are in, um, you know, we <laughs> we sometimes rarely have, like, less than 10 minutes before round, or between rounds, you know, so it doesn't really yeah, leave I a mean, lot of time I, to preparation. Exactly. You finish your game, and, and it's like the next round starts in 10 minutes because you've played on an increment or something, right? Exactly. And, and you know, how can I stuff my Chipotle Mexican grill hole in, like, less than 10 minutes? Like, <laughs> those burritos are massive. But Hashtag not a sponsor. Not yet. But they could least. be. Yeah, they could be. Right. Let's add them in the description and put no. their link in the comments in our no. bios. Absolutely. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so like if a lot of times, since you don't have any time for preparation, you don't know what your opponent's going to play. Now, uh, I know some people just have their opening repertoire and that's what they play. That's great. Uh, I kind of wish I had the discipline to do that, but, uh, 
kind of being the promiscuous opening studier that I am, um, can't help myself. Uh, I can play a lot of different openings and especially depending on what I've prepared lately for myself or students. Um, yeah, it all depends on my mood, but like, so if I don't know my opponent and let's say I, I remember a case recently in the Illinois open where I played, uh, where my opponent played E4, I showed up uh, 10 minutes late and I was just thinking about what to play. And I was just looking at my opponent and I thought, Hmm, I, cause I had to really win the game. And so uh, I was, you know, naturally like my, one of my favorite openings plays is Sicilian. So I was looking, trying to decipher and guess maybe what does this person play? Attempting and, to peer into his soul. Yes, exactly. Like, yes. Okay. And so I thought, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe some Alapin or closed Sicilian. And sure enough, they, they did play two knights C3, but in a more like kind of in a, not the system like way, you know, okay. just kind of the slightly chameleon-esque way, but uh, but still, like, I was very happy to see that, um, you know, my choice of 1d6 was vindicated by that. That's interesting. I mean, I now that you bring this up, um, I can relate. I, I've done similar things. I remember I was playing in, a, in an invitational tournament one time. Uh, I, it, it was invitational in the sense that um, there were a limited number of entrants. It wasn't open but it was a Swiss system. So there were 20 people invited for a five round Swiss system. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So like it was kind of possible to prep for 20 people if you weren't lazy like I am. Um, but instead I just elected to kind of, you know, wing it and go round by round and, and game by game. And I remember I got the impression of a certain player in the first round that he was just sort of very stodgy and, you know, um, what have you. Um so I decided in round two that uh, I was just going to push my H pawn as soon as he castled. And, <laughs> you know, like, um, you know, it, you know, in other words, like whatever opening we play, I, I began with queen pawn. I, I want to say it was a queen's game, but declined. And at, at some point he castled and I just played H4 and castled queenside and, and had a very exciting game. Um, which actually, as I recall, I should have lost, but ended up winning anyway. Uh yeah, that brings up another interesting point that we can touch on later. Maybe the character of play in some positions. That, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is I got into a difficult position, but but my opponent in that game just didn't know how to handle it. Right. Um, which bring which actually brings to mind one of my favorite all time chess book quotes. And this one I'm going to attribute correctly. It was not Fisher. Um, it was uh, Kotov and who was Kotov's co author for Art of the Middle Game? Bobby Fisher. Bobby Fisher. Kotov uh, and Fisher no. in Art of the Middle Game. Kotov and Kiris, uh, oh, Paul oh, Kiris. Kiris, yeah, there were several yes. uh, Golombek and others. Okay, so in that in that book, there's a section on... Um, so, great book, by the way, Art of the Middle Game, highly recommend it. Um, there's a section on basically playing difficult positions. Right, and yeah. I remember the quote. The quote is, difficult positions are difficult to play. <laughs> yes, exactly. That was one of the first things that that they said, right? In that yes. Chapter? Like, I think it might've even been the introduction and it was just like incredibly simplistic. And then when you think about it, it's very profound because it gives you a lot of information. Like you right. can make your opponents continue to play those difficult positions, you know, don't give them forcing ways out of it. Even if it may mean like uh, cashing in for a pawn or something like that, right? right? Like make them suffer in the difficult position. And uh, yeah, also too, in a, a similar quote who, where I don't, I don't remember where this came from. I think it might've been Tartakower, but, uh, in a bad position, all moves are bad. <laughs> yes. I remember you know, that. and so, yeah, just, <clears throat> so, okay, what do we do for, you know, with that information? Well, 
basically you got to give your opponent enough uh, rope to hang themselves with. Like you have a bunch of moves that are bad and you know, don't no need to worry because you're already, you're already screwed. Right. So just try to give them some rope to hang themselves with. Yeah. I think that's great advice. You know, um, as long as we're on this topic, there's another, there's another book. Uh, this one is a Dabretsky manual. Um, maybe we've talked about it before the, uh, training for the tournament player. Yeah. And, uh, he's in the section. It's actually about defense, but I would say this is true for all chess players at all times. He lists three characteristics that all good defenders must have. Have We discussed this Mm -hmm. before. Uh, I don't believe so. And he says it's, you know, basically he's kind of giving the same Tardic hour, like, you know, bad positions are bad spiel. And, you know, if you're a defender, you're going to have to defend difficult positions from time to time. And what's important, and this is directly related to our topic of the day, psychology, what's important is not necessarily, you know, the moves you play, but how you approach, like, your mindset. He says all all good defenders have three things in common. Composure. So mm-hmm. the ability to stay calm and composed and like not lose their cool when they're under pressure and obviously defending a difficult position, you're under immense pressure. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is presence of mind. So um, kind of like you put it right, like resourcefulness, like staying present, staying focused, but also uh, finding resources, get, finding that rope to give them. Right. Yes. And then the third one is dogged determination. Uh, right. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Absolute, you know, refusal to give up. I always tell students, it's it, just remember CPD when you get, you know, when you go to play any game, CPD, not Chicago police department. You. Yes. No composure, presence of mind and yay. Dogged determination. Right. It's, it's very funny. You brought this up because, uh, literally moments before we were recording this, and this is something I, I haven't told you, but, uh, I was rereading The Secret Ingredient, a book by Jan Marcos and David Navarra. So okay. uh, previously, Jan Marcos wrote, you know, this book I talk about all the time, Under the Surface. Yes. And so they, they wrote another book basically about um, what practical chess is actually all about. Um, so they talk about, like, uh, a lot of different types of defense. Like, uh, you know, you could build a fortress, counterattack. You can offer exchanges to ease your defense or sabotage. So there are several different ways, uh, points where they go into all of those things. And yeah, Navarra writes, patience, vigilance, and restraint are the qualities most needed when defending a fortress, for example. So they go into a lot of these like things to look for and expect psychologically, you know? Yeah, that's interesting that they're almost taking... I guess if I could describe it this way, like a concrete approach, right, to how your psychological, can, how your, how the psychological elements can translate to a position. Right. Hmm. I um. So one of the things that I have in our in our show notes here, and I'm curious to hear your your take on this one too. Um. Can an opponent get inside your head? And yeah. I think I think about you know one one of the famous video you've probably seen. Uh, they, you know, the one of Naka, Nakamura crying in a Magnus game. You remember that one? Yes. It does feel like Magnus just has some sort of like grip over him. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you think about that? Can they, has it happened to you? And what do you Absolutely. do? What do you do if it does? Um, 
I I mean, so yeah, my my really difficult opponent is uh, Grandmaster Dmitry Gurevich from Chicago. Um, you know, very like very. I mean, man, how how did he even describe what a great person he is? Um, yeah, very nice guy. Such and high levels of player. understanding. Yeah, absolutely. Like one of the top players in Illinois for years. You know, he's been here since the '80s, right? So, um, yeah, super hard to play against. But like for some reason. Uh, after our first game, like where I was like slightly better against him and then just sort of, you know, drifted into this equal end game and then became worse. And then he just totally outplayed me in this like very long draining game. Um, but I think I must've been like, Oh, and four mm-hmm. or Oh, and five against him. Um, and I'm not really sure. Like, <clears throat> you know, he just, he, he played awesome. I had a few, uh, missed wins in in one game, uh, possibly a couple more where I like missed some chances, and that can kind of form a narrative in your head when, let's say, you know, you feel like your position's promising, and then you're slightly lo- even losing the thread, even if it's just slightly. Uh, you start to have this narrative in your head: uh, Is it like happening here's how again? It begins, yeah. Right. So, like Shirov talks about this in Fire on Board when um, he played Kasparov, I think, for one of the last times. It was a game in Linares in, like, the early 2000s where he was black and anti-martial. And so he wrote, like, would I have a better chance than, you know, Moscow 1997 or whatever, wherever, the game he's quoting, where he did have a winning or promising position against him. And, you know, he was very candid sort of in that, in his thoughts that, like, yeah, my score was so lopsided that it, it was hard to not let that get to my head. Um, I will say this though, the way I got over that was, uh, when we played in the Illinois open, um, it was the last game of the fast schedule. And so I had just drew with a very high rated 2100 player, like should be about master strength. And this was in the Illinois open of 2019. And mm-hmm. so he was half a point ahead of me. So I had like five minutes, maybe just to collect my thoughts and go to the game. I knew I would play him and yeah, he's half point ahead of me. And so I play E4, he plays C5 and offers me a draw. And wow. Okay. And so I didn't know and why he has at this point, like a four Oh five Oh score against you, right? Yes. I think, yeah, I think four, yeah. Four or five. And so I was thinking about what he wanted, why. And like, you know, like I, first of all, I probably it would have been, I would have really struggled to get over twenty three hundred were it not for some of Dimitri's help at 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 that point in my chess career and especially like subsequently you know still think about what he says so it, naturally we had grown close in the time he was cultivating this massive score against me and uh, <laughs> you know I sure in a different situation yeah I might have taken a draw but then I thought you know man this would suck at, at this stage of the tournament. The Illinois open is like six rounds long. So uh, yeah, every point's valuable. And so it took me like five minutes to compose myself and decline it and play two night F three. And uh, yeah, I, it was really quite a struggle. Like I thought I was going to win by like move 15. I thought I would have him resigning in less than 10 moves, but instead he fought like absolute lion and uh you know, really made me show some very strong technique for me to convert my advantage. And it really just felt like uh, I was just in such control that game. And it, even though I had to work super hard for it, you know, it was more satisfying that way. Um, were, were you able to break the curse? I did. I, I beat him. Yeah. Wow. 
And so, you know, the thing is, you're going to have your chances and remember that. Um, But, you know, with regards to this narrative, that's easy to cultivate. Like when you're in the game, you just have to deal with what's in front of you, you know? Why do we why do we do that as chess players? Because I'm guilty. I suspect, you know, a, a lot, if not all of the listeners right now have done something similar where you construct a narrative about a situation, an opponent, a game, you know, why do we do that? Is that just I think human we're human nature? beings. Pure, yeah, really human nature. Yeah, we're, we're human beings. Some, I mean, not computers kind of way to frame it and to have to assign meaning to these situations. Yes. And yeah, to under, yeah, some understanding. Um, Cause like, yeah, we, especially if you're naturally inquisitive, you know, you know, these things don't always happen in a bubble, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just our human nature to want to do that. But being, but being present is just like, I mean, I don't know. That's it's simple advice. It's, it's not like, you know, it's, I, when I say that, I feel like the football commentator, that's like, well, you know what they do is they have to pass the football. Like, oh, really? I thought they had to, you know, play with themselves in the dugout or whatever right. it is. No, like, but, <clears throat> it's a simple. It's a simple thing. But then, you know, it's interesting because I give that exact um, advice to students. Like, you know, what should be my focus this weekend? Okay, here, here's your focus. Ready? Make mm-hmm. a good move. Yeah, exactly. That's really the only realistic goal that you can have. You know. Yeah, make a good move, and then follow it up with another good move, and then just keep right. Doing that. And and it's it almost sounds like you're you're being sarcastic or you know you're being an intentionally obtuse or something, but that's right. a good goal. I mean, if you can make a strong move, especially in a difficult moment, um, you don't need to construct that narrative. You don't need to you know the, you can tune stuff out and make a good move. And you're blocking and, it out, you're blocking out all the you know unnecessary things. Like when yes. at the end of the day, you just have to make a good move or a good decision. A good decision. Yes, I you know I think back to my best tournaments and that and and the best tournaments I've played were when I was able to do that, do precisely that, block things out and just moves, make Mm -hmm. moves, right. And it's 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 more difficult. Be ready to make a lot of them too. Yeah, a lot of them, and and you have to sometimes. And I this is another piece of advice I give to students: you have to sometimes beat an opponent more than once in a game. In fact, oh, very absolutely. often you have you have to win the game four, five, six times. And yeah, and that could be because mistakes uh, like can be made, and also like we know this with computers, like sometimes the tolerance of a position could be higher than what you think, you know. Right. And there so during the game, resources and things like that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like I thought, you know, with Dimitri, uh, <laughs> you know, I was just surprised at how much tolerance that his position had. He found like these only moves. And then for me to, to finally crack that, um, you know, it took the, that dogged determination that we would take, we would talk about in the context of defense, but, uh, yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's just, you, in any you have context, to win. I, I like taking those times. three traits and just applying them to chess in general, you know, Dvoretsky yeah. included them as, as traits of the defender, but I think what a great, what a great encapsulation mm-hmm. of hey, what, what traits should you have if you want to be a good chess player? What traits should you work on? What characteristics should you try to develop? Right. Here you go. These three. CPD. You know, I think uh, something that chess players would benefit from that uh, pool players have to do a lot is uh, hmm. like visualization exercises. Hmm. Um, like to give a chess example, like every time I've, I've like really needed to just just like a must win situation or you know, I just have to really basically, you know, show it's <laughs> that it's showtime. Um, 
I've always visualized myself being the last person playing in the tournament hall. And like, yeah, that kind of sucks sometimes, but you know, I just visualize myself doing that just with the same amount of intensity as I came in with. Um, and just like this never ending energy and enjoying every second of it, you know? And then, yeah, just like, that's the most important thing in the world to me right now is just what's in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. That's almost, I guess the presence of mind part, right? Yeah. What's in front of me. Yeah. I like that. You know, after many years, like playing and, and coaching, and honestly, I would say it was the teaching and the coaching that really finally put this in picture for me. Um, I, I'm curious to hear your take on it. How do you feel about the notion that, you know, psychology and chess, that, you know, the real psychological struggle is just it's self-control mm-hmm. to, to improve at chess. You just, you, you slowly and steadily improve your self-control. Yeah, I, I believe, yeah, I believe in that quite a bit. Um, I remember like when we've taught camps, fe- uh, featuring like a lot of junior players, for example, like we would just be, you know, kind of, I mean, not surprised because we already knew it, but it was just really interesting to observe how often a lot of people's results are just hampered by playing tendencies, Yeah, you know, so right, like exactly. playing too fast or like having this narrative that we're talking about, you know, um, yeah, I mean, all this kind of boils down to some degree of self-control, I think. Yeah, or even, yeah, I, I completely agree. Playing tendencies, um, ability to focus, right? Tuning those, tuning the distractions out like we talked about. Even, even in the moment where you have to make a decision, you know, being willing, being open to the possibility that resources are there. You know, even, right. if, you're, even if your instinct is failing you, your, in, your intuition, you know, your chess intuition is failing yeah. you. Just being open to the idea that, you know, maybe I am thinking about this position in the wrong way. Um, yeah, uh, especially or, when you realize you've you've already erred in judgment before, right? In the same right, way. yeah. So with regards to the error in judgment uh, type thing, like I remember reading on quite a few occasions that like Spassky um, was famous for like if he made some like miscalculation, uh, like some blunder in his calculation, even if he never actually made that move, it was a very worrying sign for him. So he would try to like steer the game into a safe uh, safe harbor. Um, by doing that yeah interesting so yeah i mean i think i think this to me is like somewhere in here is the essence of just psychology you know um and and as you put it as you put it it's like everyday decision making right um, and self-control and and self-control could apply to a lot of scenarios too you know we talked about within the moment of the game we talked about uh, playing tendencies, but even in study, right? Self-control mm-hmm. and study, being able to recognize where you need to devote that study and being efficient with it. Um, or not, um, you know, being, uh, yeah, just being open. Like you mentioned something about like, maybe I'm not uh, thinking about this the right way. Um, yes. You know, like a lot of people, sure, when studying their games or annotating their games, it, they'll just have like a different false narrative about this. And then it's, you know, that the feedback that they get maybe from the computer could confirm that, but like an experienced coach could already tell you, well, Hey, look, you're maybe you're fine here, but look at your margin for error. In reality, your problems started way back here, you know, and yes, focusing exactly. on that pattern. Three or four moves before where you think the problems began, right? You, you didn't recognize the moment where you started to, to, to go off path. 
I think, you know, honestly, from a coaching perspective, I think that's one of the most difficult things to work with is a player who um, cannot, has a hard time opening themselves to other ways of thinking about the game or a position. Yeah. You know, Um, um, oh, sorry, go on. No, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was going to say this, I would think, kind of relates to this point I want to come back to, actually, Um, Mm -hmm. talking about being open to like different ideas. Like I remember uh, reading a very simple but quite profound thing in uh, Agard's uh, Grandmaster Preparation uh, Calculation book. Okay. Uh, In his section on candidate moves, basically he shows an example of this normal looking position and like, yeah, sure. It looks like one side is worse and Agard's opponent just collapses in a few moves and loses. But uh, he actually had an interesting looking candidate move. Uh, You know, you could find it if you were looking for it, you know, but what the move that they, the moves that they made instead were just so routine. And as a result led to the collapse, but because you were uh, only right, you weren't opening yourself, right? You were well, only yeah. looking at this one like closed, closed idea. Right. And so basically he says, like, if you're not maybe. right. Yeah. And you're, if you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Also too, that could tie into when we were talking about defense earlier, like uh, knowing that you will get chances if you, just try to resist or, you know, just think, okay, well that, that what happened before this was an old game, you know, so I'm going to start a new game where I am going to maybe bear down a bit more and be careful and look for my chances and be ready, mentally ready for them. I like that idea of an old game versus a new game, like just drawing a line almost in the sand. Right. And that, you know, that's a psychological trick too. Like being able to just sort of take a deep breath and look at the position anew. I can't tell you how many times in a, in a tournament setting I've literally, you know, stood up from the position, just physically taken a deep breath or two kind of stretched. And when I sit down, I, I just have almost, I feel like a different player, like a new person, you know, it, it's almost like a, a cleansing, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, exactly. Like for that, um, uh, I believe it was Blumenfeld. Uh, he recommended to, write the move down on the score sheet, which I believe is prohibited under certain yeah. rule you sets. Now, you now can right. no longer do that. Yes, exactly. But, you know, and then like, take a look at the board and then like, if you don't like it crossed out, if, if you do like it, go ahead and move it. Um, you know, nowadays you see players like Ivanchuk is very famous for this, like staring at the ceiling. Um, you know, sometimes like you feel like you could calculate better, but like the point of it is to break your concentration a little bit, kind of get uh, away from, like tunnel vision. Like if I notice I'm spending too much time on a move and I know that, uh, the time I've allotted for that decision is about to expire. Uh, then I will, I'll try to just look away, break my concentration for a second and then just come back with a fresh set of eyes. So Beth, Beth Harmon was modeled off of Vesely Ivanchuk. Uh, actually, the ceiling, making the moves. I mean, I believe this was seen in the first Shrek movie instead. You remember that picture I posted on Instagram? <laughs> no, I With don't. Shrek looking up at the ceiling instead of Beth Harmon? Oh, man. And seeing the chessboard? Great. Oh, it was lovely. Shrek, by the way, I would say really um, <clears throat> all-time underrated film, in my opinion. Shrek won the original. Right, exactly. I'm um, a big fan. Also, yeah, it would be pretty... Accent running around, crossing my hand. Come on. <laughs> 
uh, yeah, I think you would give Anya Taylor Joy to like a real run for for their money if if it, it was Shrek was fighting for that same role to be cast as Beth Harmon. Oh, I thought I thought we were going to talk about like a twenty four game match or something. Oh, that's interesting. Like, what do you? I, yeah, I mean, I will. I really wonder who would come out on top in a twenty four game match between Shrek and Beth Harmon. I think it would be a lot closer than than people anticipate. I think you have to give. I think you have to give like the natural edge to Beth Harmon because there are so many things that could happen to Shrek, you know, like in between games that might just take him out of it. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. Like, yeah, you could get stuck in swamp traffic, swamp traffic. I mean, mystical creatures could come by. Right. A million things could go wrong. Um, And, and also like how well can he focus? It's unclear, you know, based on the movies he may have like some undiagnosed, like ADHD or something. Yeah. um, Which might impact his ability. And so, like, while I, I kind of fancy him to play a bunch of, like, irregular openings, um, I think he would come to this match if he was well, like, I think he would come very well prepared with some proper stuff. And I think that could be very unsettling for Beth Harmon. Like, let's say he breaks out a Berlin defense. Um, yeah, it and, did you know, seem like, like maybe, you know, opening, opening, uh, high level opening theory was one of her weaknesses, right? Because she just had to call that Benny dude in New York with the stash. Anytime she ran into an opening problem. Yeah. And, and I mean, he's, he was the winner of the U S open when he was 1800, apparently, if I remember correctly from that show. I mean, uh, all so, I know is if you're relying on a Benny from New York with a mustache for your opening prep, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, he obviously isn't prepared. I mean, that mustache to be fair, this well. was pre Leela alpha zero for its, et cetera. So, I mean, we, look, we, we, we Shre- Shrek has more. mystical creatures. Like mm-hmm. they might be, much further advanced than any neural net technology that Beth Harmon could get her paws on, you know? That's fair. I mean, that that could be considered an, an unfair advantage, right? Sort of like a deep blue prepping, you know, during the match with Kasparov, right? Yes. Also, as much as I love how far afield this uh, has been derailed, <laughs> I think in the yeah, future, we, we need to do a segment on chess fights or matchups like like okay. what we've done who might maybe who wins in a in a street fight or who would win in a 24 match these ridiculous matchups yes, i really I, I really like this this is a new segment okay so every a new segment to be added every show we're gonna have uh 20 who wins the 24 game match between blank and blank yes real real quick question before we wrap this one up who is shrek second i mean donkey is the obvious choice here but i kind of is there a curveball to be had yeah, I want to say Donkey's on the Ivan, team, but who's like Ivan Cheparinov? Oh, interesting. Okay, and Donkey's yeah, sort of like the the emotional support second, you know? Yeah, exactly. Okay, I don't know why I thought Ivan Cheparinov. Maybe because his new book, uh, continuing his D four repertoire series, is coming out soon. But yeah, I could see that. I Trick's probably a clean pawn player. Well, I mean, but okay, Cheparinov plays like everything, Emperor, right? You know, Cheprinov probably has the bloodiest preparation. He worked with Topalov for so many years, and he plays everything. So, I think okay. I think Cheprinov would be a great choice for Shrek. I just wonder how well Cheprinov would vibe. If with we're Shrek, gonna do if we're gonna do this segment properly, we have to call it. So, who wins, Shrek or Beth Harmon, twenty four game match? Uh man, as much as I kind of. No, it's Beth Harmon. I want to say Shrek, and I'm I'm gonna say Shrek, and I'll die on that hill. I'll drop my money on Beth, so we can differ for round one here. All right, perfect. <laughs> Although let I, us I, know what you think in the comments. Yeah, let us know. I'm very curious to hear what are who our listeners think. Who would win, Shrek versus Beth Harmon, 24 game match? 
Um, we'll go ahead and say anything also, goes. So like you yeah. can have any second, you can have any mystical creature. Like there are no rules really other than, you know, no, no cheating once the round begins. Also, uh, yes, that's very important. Um, I guess kind of since you said we're close to wrapping this up, uh, what about psychology? Can we, did we, do we talk about both both opponents? Like we talked about maybe the preparation and stuff like that, maybe Shrek's ability to focus or you know, getting stuck in swamp traffic uh, or whatever. Yes. Good point. Okay. So, um, who has, okay. Yeah. Since that's our, since that's our topic, who has the edge there? Who is, who has, is there one to be had? If so, what is it? And of what nature of advantage do each player have in this instance? I honestly am so torn. That's why I think this is such a great fantasy matchup because in both films or in both works, rather, uh, you do see the, the very human emotional side. Um, and you see them both at very low points. Uh, but you also see this dogged determination that we talked about earlier. For sure. That's um, a good one for both players. I would say. Yeah. Both like very uh, mentally tough when the chips are down, you know? So that's very hard for me to kind of uh, give an edge in terms of resilience. Maybe you'd have to favor Shrek slightly uh, in the resilience department, but I don't know. I'm not trying to get canceled or anything. Yeah, that, I, to me, that's really tough. I, I feel like Shrek does maybe a little too much white knighting, which may impact him a bit, you know? Like, um, maybe maybe he he has a, uh, some kind of Im- impediment when things really get tough and, and he just, I don't know, something distracts him. I kind of like how both have a, have a very Fisher-esque tendency to be unfriendly towards the media. Yeah, good point. The press conferences would probably be amazing for this match. Yeah. Could you exactly. imagine that post-game press conference after like a yes. 112 move decisive game? Except instead of Anastasia Karlovich or whomever does the interviews, we have uh, Anish Giri. Oh, I was thinking Lord Farquhar. I yeah, we could yeah, you know. <laughs> Maybe hey. both. Why not both? Yeah, exactly. For In sure. In fact, that's probably our Twitch commentary team, Anish Giri and Lord Farquhar or whatever his name is. Yeah. I think that's I'm it. saying that right. That's the that's the commentary team. That's the dream team right there. Yeah, move over Gusti and Svidler. We now have Lord Farquhar and Anish Giri. And Anish Giri. <laughs> All right, go Paul. Speaking of our listeners, and by the way, guys, weigh in. Who? Two things. Here's what I'd love to hear. Number one, who wins between Beth Harmon and Shrek in a 24 game match? And number two. Who should we do next? Who's our next chess fight? I mean, of course, Gopal and I are going to think up names and, and come up with a good one, but who do you guys want to hear us discuss? 24-game match, anybody or anything versus anybody or anything. Or place, why not? Why, 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 why not allow that to happen, too? I love it. Okay. Our listeners, actually, Gopal, reminded me that last month I was a very bad host, and I forgot an entire segment, which was this month in chess. So we are going to do that in June. Um, For new listeners or those who have forgotten, this month in chess is very simple. We've got a few news topics from the past month, the month of June. I'm going to read them off. Gopal's going to react. We're going to go back and forth and uh, ipso facto, uh, whatever, et cetera. Gopal, anything to add before we start? No, I just, I can't, like, because there's no video. You're still Um, thinking about Shrek and Beth I I am. You can't see how how happy this is. You're probably like Googling Shrek versus Beth Harmon. I think this is going to be my new opening line to anybody on Hinge or Tinder or whatever, uh, LinkedIn, whatever those dating apps are called. Okay. Yeah. Let me know. Let me know. Crowdsource it. 
crowdsource it and let me know what I will. I have to bring data points for the next for the next show. I'm expecting a spreadsheet. Anyway, I'm so happy. But on with the this month in chess, yeah. Yeah. Okay. This month in chess. Uh, This month we have five topics. Wait. Hold on. I counted wrong. One, two, three, four topics. Sorry. Um, Let's start with this one. Uh, U.S. Grandmaster Hans Niemann moves to number two on the world youth uh, rating list. He's closing in on 2,700, and he's playing right now, I think, uh, in, in a tournament. Um, go Paul, Hans Niemann, 2,700 almost. Does he have the chops? Is he the next great American yada yada? Uh, for sure. I mean, you can see it from the kind of progress he he's made uh, so far. Uh, I mean, he's, he's right there. Uh, definitely a big favorite to make it, but... Uh, also, too, like we've seen a lot of different flavors of the month, um, you know, come and go, like especially like from the 2800s. You know, some people would forget that Rajabov was there not too long ago, you know, even like Morozevich. And like it's it's hard to I mean, it's just very hard to maintain it at that level. But I mean, something about about him tells me that he can. Um, yeah, I mean, I've always thought he was super strong. Panache. Yeah, even uh, he's got that je ne sais quoi. He does. And like, I remember when he was in IM, um, we were supposed to play a money match in New York, but it just, it wasn't uh, going to happen. I think I was coming back from a chess camp in Vermont or something. You're still like open that. to playing that match. Ooh, that's going to be tough, but yeah, sure. Why not? Let's, All let's right. do it. Hans, if you're out there and listening, uh, who wins between Shrek and Beth Harmon? Also, uh, if you want to play a match against Gopal, hit me up. Uh, I actually have a Hans Niemann story. I, I played right next to him on a board in the Chicago Open in 2015. He must have been like maybe 12 at the time. I don't even know. Um, and he was already 2,300 strength. He had a really interesting game going on um, and, and watched my game for a bit as well. And I remember it um, very vividly because it was a it was a very, very, very psychologically painful game for me. I was just suffocating my opponent and then hung a rook on the move just... Made my move. My opponent took my rook that he was threatening, and I didn't notice, and I resigned instantly. Oh, my. Yeah, terrible. Terrible chess psychology. I was thinking about Shrek. Um, okay, moving on. <laughs> second second topic. Uh, this one is close to my heart, maybe yours as well, Gopal. The National Shrek. Open. Uh, Shrek, no. Uh, the National Open took place this month, June 2022, uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, international master, I hope I'm not butchering his name, Semen Kanin wins. Uh, he is the second international master in a row to win Arthur Guo. Uh, I am Arthur Guo, won in 2021. Uh, Gopal, sound off on the National Open. Uh, I mean, it's a great tournament. Uh, what was it this this year, nine rounds? I think the open section was, yeah. They've been, they've been really um, adding stuff and some other new features I want to talk about, but yeah. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, uh, uh, Conan, he like he was already above 2,500. Um, so I mean, it, not really surprised to see a GM level uh, player win it. I mean, I I think we were talking about when we went way back in what was that 2012? Can't believe that was over 10 years ago. Oh my gosh! Um, yeah, holy cow! But yeah, I think we were talking about how cool that would be to for it to be a, a nine round event because I think it was just seven back then. It was. It uh, was seven. And you're right. I just checked it. It was nine. And you were talking earlier about your game with Gurevich, how every point was so important. You know, in a large open event like this, same thing is true. you got to play fighting chess. Right, exactly. Um, I mean, in order to win such a tournament, like a lot of things definitely have to go your way. Like, 
you know, some days it just feels like everybody's a genius playing against you. Um, and I mean, that's like, it's a little, it's a little luck. Like, I don't know if I told this about, um, on the podcast before, but I remember, uh, sharing, uh, being roommates a few times with, uh, grandmaster Alexander Shabalov, former U S champion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he totally, he told me that he totally believes in luck in chess, like, and that some players are, uh, perpetually unlucky, like even their entire lives. Like, uh, yeah. So I, I thought that was a pretty, pretty hot take on the yeah, subject. Yeah, I, like, I agree. Wow. Huh. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, some luck with the pairings. Uh, yeah. I mean, like you're like the, the chances to get your actual preparation on the board. Uh, I mean, but that's a very sporty accomplishment. Um, even like, like as an, I am to, to win that tournament. Yeah, I would agree. And that's a, that is a really hot take on luck. I'm, I'm actually kind of curious to think about that more. That's going to be on my, my brainwaves for a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. National Open this year, interestingly enough, also had a streamer battle really embracing the the move of chess media online and um, the large realm of uh, people, even even still, the large numbers of people who have found the game via Twitch or elsewhere. Oh, sweet. Did it move to the to the trash can? <laughs> no, I don't I don't think they did they dragged it over there just yet. Um Okay. But- uh, no, it's it's been really cool. Um, I, I think uh, it's it's nice for me to see over the board events um, embrace this culture, you know, instead of just sort of staying in the in the traditional. Yeah, it festival, is whatever, right? Because yeah. I mean, like, let's be honest. Like, what what they've been doing, what we've been doing for years, like as traditional or whatever as it is, like, has it been working? I mean, no. There's not nothing really wrong so. with embracing, you know, like right. um, yeah, some, progress. Something and, new. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, unlike our Supreme Court, but uh, anyway. <sighs> yeah. Okay, on to the next one. Number three. Um, this is an interesting one. Stockfish. Stockfish yeah. developers are suing Chessbase for use of their open source code. They're claiming that um, Fat Fritz and other, other versions of Fritz that have been marketed under the Fritz label we're actually just stockfish. Right. Um, yeah, I remember seeing this a while ago. Uh, I didn't know what the recent, uh, I didn't know there were recent developments on it. I just remember uh, Albert Silver's uh, reply to it, which was just, I, I, it was just so, it was, it was probably one of the worst, like, apo- it wasn't even an apology, like, because the evidence is extremely damning. It's yeah, it, it's yeah, I don't know. It's it's really embarrassing that you could I think you could live with yourself and write that. Yeah, I and think, not expect to get caught in this day and age. Like Right. That to me that's the interesting part. You know, it's 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 a very popular program. Um and you know, if this if these allegations turn out to be true, um, and as you pointed out, there does appear to be a significant amount of evidence, then that's not good. Not a good look. I mean, but you got to say, like, uh, as grimy as that was, uh, you know, props to Albert Silver, I guess, for thinking that he could pull the wool, like, right in front of our eyes. Like, you know, just like the most obvious thing you could do, the most ridiculous thing you could do, you you probably did. Like, <laughs> Well, look, uh, it's, it had a different name and it had different packaging. So come on. So it's a different different program. I got yeah. you. I take it all back. 
we'll see how that plays out. I, I, I've been following that one because, you know, um, LeechS itself, the website is all open source code. Um, mm-hmm. There's been this really cool movement. I, I've been a big fan of the, the movement of chess towards that. Um, I, I love thinking of chess as a community of knowledge. Um, I recently had a conversation with a, with a former student who I, I'm working with on some other things now. And, um, you know, he mentioned how some coaches, when he would approach them, they just wouldn't want to share some of their like problems and training things with them simply because they felt it was theirs. And, um, you know, they didn't want anybody else to have access to it and yada, yada, yada. And to me, chess has always been a community of knowledge and I'm more than happy to, you know, discuss, Hey, here's what I think is important in in training. And here's some methods and techniques I use and that sort of stuff. That, that to me is the spirit that I approach the game with them. Uh, and yeah. that's why I like and support these open source um, websites like Leeches, like Stockfish, et cetera. Yeah. In this information age, I mean, there's just like, there's so much, you know? So it's like, if you have an idea, it's going to be hard to hold on to it for very long, you know? Um, <clears throat> and yeah, like that, that's just kind of how the, the movement's been like before, you know, back, like when we were kids, you know, you really had to, it just felt like every little nugget was like a, a secret, you know, yeah. and you'd, because you really would have to dig for this stuff, you know, not really. It's true. Like, there's you, no you YouTube. Have just, there's no YouTube. There's no chessable. There's no databases. There's no, I mean, just think of what you have at your fingertips now. And, and back in, <laughs> back in our day, um, mm-hmm. you know, like in, in, in the nineties, you just had to like get lucky and find the right book, you know? Um, right. For sure. Or like, you know, come across the right coach or, you know, just, mm-hmm. Yeah, just interpret the right piece of information. Uh, yeah, you have to be perpetually lucky at Shumlov, would say. Kind of, yeah, I, I would say so. It's it was pretty hard, but yeah, I think I think that's that's very cool. Um, that yeah, it's we're just trying to advance the knowledge of our game, you know. Right. Okay. Last but certainly not least, um, the candidates tournament is currently underway. Um, mm-hmm. So this will determine the challenger for the next world champion. Uh, long-time listeners of the show will remember uh, I have done a couple years a, a candidate's preview. Um, now it's a bullet point because it's just so popular these days. It's covered by almost everyone. Um, currently, Jan Nepomnishi is leading. Of course, Jan lost the match to Magnus Carlsen last year. Just today, Hikaru Nakamura's chances probably were dashed. Um, he lost to Ryabov. Uh, previously, coming into this game, Nakamura was 3-0 against Ryabov with 12 draws in classical play. So that has to really hurt. Um, I, I don't know if there's just enough rounds left for him to catch up. Jan's kind of running away with it. How do you feel about the candidates this year? Um, I mean, yeah, if, if Jan maintains this, obviously, like, you, it's hard to stop him. Like, he's still using this super solid preparation from his match with, with Carlson. Um, and combine that with, like, the very practical playing skills that he has, like where he's playing super fast, putting the opponents under pressure, not only with good moves, but with the clock as well. Uh, I mean, that's, that's very difficult to fade. Uh, You know, I don't know how you're supposed to beat that guy. Uh, There was a tendency though, that we've seen again and again, of course, where he's collapsed uh, like close to the end. Yeah. Um, And yeah, that is, you know, what, for whatever reason, but uh, I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, we're approaching that phase of the tournament where it's like, yeah, go, if we go by traditional, uh, narratives, like, yeah, maybe it's, it's starting to get to be net Nepo meltdown time. Very close to, yeah. I mean, maybe 
it's very close. I mean, there's only six rounds left. There's only six rounds left. He's a full point ahead of Fabiano. I mean, six rounds, you can still catch up. But if it's probably Fabi or nobody at this point. Uh, Nakamura with today's loss moves back to an even score. He's a full two points behind. Um, so really, with Dingley Ren, right? With Dingley Ren, they're both on an even score. It feels to me though like this is now a two horse race with a with a really strong edge to Nepo. Uh, I mean, I want to say that. Uh, I mean, I kind of have that same feeling, but um, just for the sake of. Uh, being a contrarian, I mean, Ding was my pick before the candidates tournament. Um, mm-hmm. I think if everything stayed normal and the world didn't collapse, like <laughs> it has in the last few years, like I had always pegged him as a future world champion. Um, yeah, you I know, think Ding just was my everything. pick to win the last candidates as well. Um, right. It after, just the second half was, uh, yeah, you know, well, not the, so yeah, great. Yeah, the whole, the whole event was just a catastrophe. The whole event, today. right. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, I mean, who knows? Like, if we enter Nepo meltdown territory, it, it a lot could happen. Um, that Ding is just such a strong, dynamic player. That's true. He does feel like sort of repertoire. maybe not the most stable front runner in terms of you know like steady play. He, he has been playing lights out so far, though. Yeah, and like I think, uh, yeah, just like today's game, you know, really that was a very Magnus esque game that he played today against Duda. It reminded me. Uh, a lot of like end games by Ulf Anderson as well too, like those famous end games he's played in the Catalan. Um, you know, like that's uh, that type of style. Okay, it's going to be hard to to match up against Magnus with that, but um, you know he's. Uh, but if Magnus is be able to do that against everybody else, like and Dink can copy that, then hey, that's great. Right. We'll see. Uh, six rounds to go, like I said. We're just at the conclusion of round nine as of the time of this recording. Um, we have Nakamura and Ding on an even score, two points behind the leader in Nepomnishi. Fabi, one point behind with five and a half out of nine. Exactly. I was a little disappointed. I, I was hoping Ferruja would remain competitive a little longer than he did. Um, I think he is really an interesting player. He has a really nice style. He clearly came to fight. Uh, so I was, I was sort of, you know, a little bit rooting for him. And of course the Americans as well. Yeah. Um, I just think the thing with Ferruja is like, we've seen historically with uh, even players that went on to be world champions, like Spassky and Fisher, like their first appearances in the candidates tournaments weren't, weren't that great, or at least yes, maybe as yeah, high as t- It takes a little bit of like acclimation or something almost. Yeah. Right? It's just a different vibe, you know? And, and plus, uh, you know, one thing like Ferruja had a, a, a really sudden rise and kind of out of nowhere. Um, and he was running really well at that time, but that always, that doesn't last forever. Like I remember the same thing kind of happened to Wesley. So not as yeah. dramatic, but like, you know, at some point he's, not the underdog anymore. You know, he's the favorite. And so people adjust right. the way they, they play against him. And so the thing with Ferruja was, I always thought amongst the elite players, I thought he had like some of the worst opening preparation. Same with uh, Duda. You know, Duda was, and and you see this with Ferruja too, except Ferruja does this on a higher level. Like he is so good in fighting, like in messy positions, finding ways for you to go wrong. Um, in, in like bad positions, uh, just really maximizing his chances. And like he would win a lot of games based on that. But um, 
I would say sometimes his opening preparation was not up to standard. And that could be because everything else was so good that that's the only thing that stands out, you know? Yeah, you're right. That very well could be. Gut reaction. What do you think if somebody other than Ferruja wins? Does Magnus defend his title? I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, I, I never took that. I don't know how seriously I, I took what he said. I mean, I also don't know if I care, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean maybe Magnus, right. We, we, we know he's, we know he's the best. We know he's very good. Right. Does, yeah. Does the, does the world champion title really change any of that or not? Probably not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're like, look, if you, if you don't have motivation, um, it's hard to play if you don't have motivation. Exactly. And even if you're the best like player in one of the, in the conversation for like one of the goats. Um, yeah. So I don't, I really don't know. Uh, I kind of think it'd be cool to see him make good on his promise because then like everything he does after that will be, will just feel a lot more special. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, and I, he's, I'm he's such a big such Magnus fanboy. I just want him to play. <laughs> I enjoy watching him play. Oh, for sure. It's like right. for the Yankees or whatever, but I, I love him. I just think he's a great, I think he's great for chess. I think he's a great player. So I yeah. And I love whoever. the new stuff he prepares for sure. It just right. doesn't seem yeah. as cookie cutter as, as everybody else's. Um, although he Fabi has, his own, he has his own twist too, you know, like he has his own right. little way of, 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 something magnified a team of great seconds um hey you know maybe if shrek made it in the makes it in the next candidate cycle you know maybe carlson would continue or consider coming out of retirement yes i think so although clear edge to to magnus there he's just you know yeah i mean yeah well look shrek has those ferruja like fighting abilities you know so i don't know we could that could be another discussion We can't have Shrek fight somebody every every month. Come on now. I guess in my head, could, in my head mentally, that's what he's doing. <laughs> All right, and what a great way to wrap up the June Chess Underground Gopal. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I love I love our new segment idea. We'll definitely continue that in July. Uh, any parting words about any of the news topics? Psychology, Shrek. Um, Shrek is love. Shrek is life. He he is love. He is life, and uh, yeah, chess psychology. Whether or not you want to, uh, I guess, believe in it, it still it still exists. It plays a big role in like everyday decision making when things are not going so well. Um, and yeah, a lot of times this ability to uh, use the psychology when making the decisions is a big thing that separates. Uh, you know, the, yeah, the, the very strong, even elite players from, you know, just normal, good players, you know? Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, for Gopal Menon, I am your host, Pete Karyanis. Again, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Love to hear from you on uh, what chess battle we should consider next time. Um, in the meantime, signing off. Thank you for listening to the Chess Underground, a U.S. chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday, and include Ladies' Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lucas. U.S. Chess would like to thank Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media for a podcast production and editing. If you are starting your own podcast, visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com for consulting, production, and editing.
Until next time, signing off, Pete Karyanis. <laughs>